Hey everyone, it's Megan, the Family Finance Mom, adding a new weekly segment to Finance Explained. Now, in addition to financial deep dives and expert interview episodes each season, I'll be posting Q&A replays once a week. I host these sessions live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. over on Instagram. If you'd like to have your questions answered, look for the question box in my Instagram stories ahead of each session or join live and ask in the comments. But to make it easier for you to listen to the replays on the go, in segments and at your convenience, you can now listen here. Hey, Family Finance Moms, happy Wednesday, and welcome to what will be our last live Q&A of 2023. Um, I'm sure like all of you, holiday season is picking up and you have lots of things to get done in the next, you know, call it two weeks. Um, So I'm going to start winding down after this week um, and spend some time with my family through the holidays, but I will be back uh, the first week of January when the kids return to school. Um, First question, Biden's recent round of student loan forgiveness, it's also confusing who, how, and is it legal? So there's a couple things that have been going on over the last several years, right? So during the pandemic, um, I'm going to kind of summarize all that's transpired to try to make sense of it, and then I'll explain the most recent round. So during the pandemic, the um, president used emergency powers to authorize the Department of Education, which the Federal Department of Education, one of, or really kind of like their main job is administering the student loan program. That's really where the bulk of federal education goes to. And so they use that federal agency um, and the emergency powers during the pandemic to put all student, all federal student loans into forbearance. So forbearance simply means that all interest accrual was paused and nobody had to make any payments um, and there were no penalties for doing that. And then there began to be the discussions of student loan forgiveness. And obviously a couple different versions of that were attempted to pass. It went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court basically said um, that there was no authority under the means that they were trying to pass it. There was no legal authority for them to unilaterally by a federal agency authorize that, that it was something that would have to be, you know, passed and accepted by Congress, who by the constitution has the authority over all spending power at the federal government level. That's sort of the very condensed short version of what transpired. Since that kind of ruling by the Supreme Court, There have been various announcements here and there of pockets of student loan forgiveness. So how is that being enacted? Well, there were a series of programs that were already authorized, um, you know, were already part of legislation that was passed and approved and were in place already at the federal agency of the U.S. Department of Education. Some of those included things like, and last week, this is what... um, some of the forgiveness passed under these or was permitted under these programs. So one is called IDR, which is income-driven repayment. So under income-driven repayment programs, people who have student loans that may have, you know, significant debt balances, but maybe they have a job that just doesn't really pay that much, they can apply for income-based repayment or income-driven repayment. And under those programs, they typically will say, okay, so long as you're paying 
this payment that is equivalent to some percentage of your income, and you do that for the next 10 years. At the 10-year mark, so long as you've made all your payments and not ever had a late payment um, and abided by all the terms of the agreement, at the 10-year mark, whatever balance is left will be forgiven, for example. Um, and so that is income-driven repayment. Now, historically, what had happened is the federal, the Department of Education made it exceedingly difficult for people who qualified under those programs to actually ever see the forgiveness happen. And so what has happened since the Supreme Court kind of shot down the blanket student loan forgiveness, um, the federal government has gone into the Department of Education and said, okay, how can we make the programs that already exist work more effectively for people. And so that is how you're seeing kind of these buckets of forgiveness happen here and there. It's basically taking like, hey, these are policies and programs that were in place and were intended to provide relief for people. Let's make sure that they're actually working. So one of them, as I said, is the income-driven repayment or IDR. And that's a bucket of what was the forgiveness that was passed last week. The other one that has seen a lot happen underneath it is PSLF, which stands for Public Service Loan Forgiveness. That is associated with certain roles and jobs that people take in public service. And again, if you fulfill the work requirement within, with, you know, within that, the terms of those agreements, a lot of it applied to things like public school teachers, for example, or public school teachers in certain areas that, you know, had a shortage and needed um, additional educators to go in. That was a bucket where people could qualify for public service loan forgiveness as an example. And again, it was a situation where there was an application process. The agency that kind of oversaw all of that, which is the U.S. Department of Education, wasn't doing the best job in sort of processing and facilitating those forgivenesses. And then there was a whole lot of confusion too that I think came about once forbearance went into place, whether the period of forbearance, which just ended you know, a, a month or so ago, whether that time period of nearly four years would apply towards, you know, in some cases there was a 10-year payment period that people had to meet before they could qualify for some of those programs. Did a period of you know, nearly four years of forbearance, does that count towards it? And so anyway, it's sort of like dotting the I's and crossing the T's on programs that were already legislated and existed and making sure that they were working and doing what they should have been doing to begin with. Um, and so just to give some perspective, the um, this was from last week, the 80,000 borrowers that received some level of loan forgiveness, um, it amounted to $4.8 billion in student loan debt. And roughly half of that was under the income-driven repayment programs, and the other a little more than half was under the public service loan forgiveness. So when you're hearing and seeing these various announcements, um, that's how it's happening. And so from that perspective, it is legal because it is under legislation and programs that were already authorized by Congress, for example. Um, and that's how it is happening. And if you go to the U.S. Department of Education's website, which is ed.gov, um, you can see each time they announce what they're announcing, how the forgiveness is being facilitated, like under what program and kind of the breakdown in terms of dollars and number of borrowers and things like that. 
for perspective, there's $1.6 trillion worth of public um, or federal student loan debt outstanding. So when we're talking like in the fives of billions, we're talking like, you know, not even a full percentage point, for example, of forgiveness um, in terms of the total loan balances outstanding. So it is helpful around the edges, but it is not, you know, there's still significant student loan debt outstanding that is not being forgiven, um, just to kind of put some numbers and data points around it. So I hope that answers the question and kind of clears up um, me, you know, I think what has been confusing for a lot of people. One thing that I would say, however, is that if in the past you thought you might be eligible for one of those programs and you went through the application process and it was denied for whatever reason, a technicality, whatever, it might be a good time to revisit some of those programs to see if you might qualify for forgiveness now. Um, that would be kind of one piece of advice that I would kind of suggest in the current moment. So I hope that that helps. Um, okay, next question. What are your opinions on allowance? So I'm assuming this is to do with like allowance for like young children. There's, for whatever reason, and I don't really understand it, there's a lot of controversy if you go on like parenting blogs or in mom's groups around whether or not you should provide an allowance. Here's how I think about it and also kind of how I think about teaching kids about money in general. What many studies have shown is that kids' money habits form at a far younger age than many people might anticipate. And from my perspective, a child is prepared and ready and able and capable of learning and understanding money as soon as they're old enough to count. As soon as somebody is old enough to recognize that like two is more than one, um, they're ready to start to understand kind of some of those money concepts of like, well, how much does this cost? Is this more or less than something else? Is this expensive? Is this cheap? And you can start having those conversations you don't have to like have it, you know, formulaically or sit down at dinner every night and talk about it, but it can come up in everyday activities, right? Like I remember when my kids were toddlers and like, we'd go to Target to run errands and they want everything in sight. And so I would start saying, well, how much does it cost? And I would show them where they could find like the price tag um, and taught, and we would talk about like, that's a lot of money. You know, you can put that on your wish list for Santa or you can put that on your birthday wish list, those kinds of conversations. And those can start happening as young, like I said, when my kids were toddlers. So as young as two, three, and four years old. Um, the lessons that kids should understand about money is that money is earned, um, that money has value, the importance of saving, and then ultimately over time, kind of the benefits of saving too, that compound interest effect. So an allowance I view as a tool for teaching those lessons, and I think it is an incredibly valuable tool. So if you think of it as a tool to teach those lessons, for example, that money is earned, I think an allowance is an excellent tool if it is used in the right way. So I don't believe in, okay, everybody's going to get $5 every week. You can earn an allowance each week in exchange for doing something, working to earn that allowance each week. And I don't think it should be associated with things that are 
minimal expectations that should be happening anyway. Like for example, doing your homework or doing well in school. It's more like there should be chores and lists of duties that a child is responsible for around the house and in contributing to your household and lightening your workload, they are earning that allowance each week. Um, so things like, you know, my son is responsible for taking out the garbage can to the end of the curb and bringing it in after the garbage gets picked up. Um, the kids are responsible for helping me unload the dishwasher. Things like that should be chores on a list that you can, you know, do to earn money. Um, so I think if you're giving an allowance, it should be something that is earned and linked to doing something in order to earn it. The other thing that I think is important is to convey that money has value. You actually need to make your kids use that allowance. So they understand like, I worked hard to earn this money. It has value to me. And if I part with it, like it's going to be because it's something that I really value in exchange. Um, so what do I mean by that? Well, in the past, if you may have fulfilled their wants and desires that were kind of out of the realm of norm, you know, like you go to Target, they see a book they want, they see a toy they want. That's when you start saying once they're earning an allowance, okay, that's great. You can put it on your birthday wish list, or you can use your allowance to pay for it. And you will see very quickly how their perspective changes when suddenly they have to spend their hard-earned money for something as opposed to just being handed to them. Um, and then the third thing is to encourage saving and also begin to instill that sort of concept of um, compound interest. You can talk about like if there's something big that they want, we'll say, okay, well, you can save your allowance for it. And they'll start to very quickly and at a much younger age than you might expect, do that mental math of, well, it's $100. Like if your kid is earning, call it $5 a week, they're like, well, that's 20 weeks of allowance. Like that's a lot. And it becomes like, well, is that worth it to me is sort of how they'll start to think about it. And as they save, you can also encourage that saving by saying things like, okay, I know this is something you really want. I know you've been working hard for it. I know you've been saving for it. If you save 75% of it, you know, mom and dad will pick or will kick in to help with the last 25% of it. That sort of starts to convey that concept of the benefit of saving, as well as, you know, there's a reward for saving. Um, so let it's, um, I'm definitely a big believer in allowance. I think it is effective if used in the right way in order to teach those important lessons about money and finance um, and not just hand it over as a given. Um, the other thing is I think it is valuable for kids to have money in their hands and allow them to make choices and mistakes um, at a fairly young age and make those mistakes with, you know, $1, $5 and $10 as opposed to amounts with commas in them as they get older. And the reality is, is that kids are making decisions about money with commas in it when they're in high school now, right? Whether it's thinking about things like buying a car or their college decision, right? A college decision now is much more financially fraught 
um, than it was when we were making that decision and certainly than when our grandparents were making the decision. And so for kids to understand that money has value is incredibly important and it's incredibly important at an earlier age, I think, than ever before. And so to the extent that I am, my kids are earning an allowance, they're learning how to make choices with money, make financial decisions. And if they can learn to do that at, you know, small dollar amounts, it's going to translate to doing it with larger dollar amounts. And those larger dollar amount decisions are happening sooner and earlier and with more impact in terms of, you know, the your college decision now and the amount of student loan that you're signing yourself up to take on and the career choice that you're making, all of those decisions are happening earlier and the weight that they carry, the impact of those decisions is lasting much longer. And it could impact the entirety of the rest of your life, depending on, you know, if you don't choose well. Um, and so, like I said, I think giving those dollar amounts within the confines of the lessons you want to teach about money are incredibly valuable, probably more valuable than they've ever been. And I'd much rather my kid make a mistake spending $25 on a piece of junk plastic toy that, you know, breaks the next day and make a $25 mistake than make a $25,000 mistake when they're 18. Um, so anyway, that's kind of the way that I think about allowance. I know there's controversy of, of, around allowance and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing or how you use it, but that's how I think about it. And that's how we use it in our house. But great question. Um, okay. Oops, I just waved at somebody. That wasn't intentional. Uh, next question, car tax. Do you pay local spring tax in addition to car tax? Ours is $1,500 a year. Um, only for home, not, okay. So I'm not entirely sure, but to give some background over like the last week or so, we've been talking about cars and the cost of car ownership and car buying decisions. And one of the things that came out of that in my stories is that some people were shocked that in certain states, you have to pay property tax on your cars. And there's some confusion about what that means. Every state in the country has registration fees where you have, you know, or when you buy your car, for example, you'll pay tax, title, and licensing fees to register the car, get your license plate, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and there's sales tax when you initially buy the car. Many states, especially from what I can gauge on the East Coast and somewhat in the Midwest, less so kind of on the West Coast, many states um, in those areas that I just mentioned actually assess a property tax on your car on an annual basis. So every state I think in the nation or almost all as uh, that I'm aware of charge property tax on your home. So everybody's familiar that there are um, property taxes associated with owning a home that you have to pay on an annual basis. For many people, they get escrowed alongside their mortgage and along with like their home insurance and your mortgage company pays those on your behalf. Um, the same thing happens with cars, only you're on your own for it. So in the state of Connecticut, for example, we get, my husband and I get two property tax, actually three property tax bills every year. Um, one for our house and then one for each of our cars. Um, and the amount is crazy. Like just for perspective, 
Um, I drive a 17 year old Tahoe that has like 170,000 miles on it that if I tried to trade it in, I might get maybe three to $5,000 in value for trading it in. Um, and the car tax bill on my car is like 200 ish dollars a year, um, which, you know, it's not crazy, but it's not nothing. And if you, you know, say you move to a new state and you knew nothing about this, which is what happened to me when I first moved to Connecticut and that bill came in the mail for the first time, I was like, what is this? I've never, you know, I'd lived in multiple states prior to that and had never experienced anything like that before. So if you suddenly get a multi-hundred dollar bill in the mail that you're not expecting, for some people that can be, um, you know, a big budget buster. And by the way, my husband who has a newer vehicle, his property tax bill for his car is north of $1,000 a year. Um, so it's not nothing. And it is one of those things where if you are driving a newer car, you're going to have a much heftier tax bill associated with it. Somebody saying I had no idea we're in New Jersey and luckily do not have that. Um, so I know like Connecticut and Massachusetts, um, some of the people who responded uh, said like the Carolinas, um, I think Georgia used to have one, but did away with it. Missouri, I think has one. Indiana has one. Um, I'm trying to think where else. But anyway, uh, it's just another cost of ownership. And just like with a house, right? Like a house, there's more to owning and operating a house than just the mortgage payment and home insurance and taxes. There's maintenance and things like that. The same is true with owning a car. And so that's really where that conversation came, came from. And the property tax bill associated with your car is different. And in addition to things like registration fees, like I know a lot of states have like an annual registration fee. Some states have like an emissions test that you have to pass every year. So, you know, there's cost of car ownership, just like there's cost of home ownership. And it's making sure you kind of understand that whole financial picture. Uh, okay, next question. This is kind of a two-parter. The head of BlackRock said recently that retail investing will change and will be more token-like related to, for example, like an ETF. Follow-on, BlackRock had said tokenization would change bond market investing. What does that mean? Okay, so let's talk about token or tokenization and what exactly that means. Tokenization is essentially like buying something that it's it's kind of like a derivative. So in finance, a derivative is where you're buying something where you don't actually have ownership of the thing, um, but the derivative behaves and performs and mimics the performance of the thing. Um, so for example, a futures contract is a derivative. It's gonna behave and respond to changes in the price of the underlying good. So if you buy like a futures contract on oil, for example, it's going to behave and move and the price and the value of it is going to change in response to that. A token is usually directly linked to some asset, but it allows you to buy in, for example, at a lower price point. So some things that have happened in finance that are sort of along the lines of this tokenization are things like... Um, I can't remember what they call them, but they're like share slices where you could buy a piece of, say, Apple stock 
for $5, even though to buy a full share of Apple is much greater than that. So some brokerages have offered that. And it, it, it essentially is a way to give more people access to financial markets. So for example, to buy a bond, one bond is $1,000. Well, if you only have, say, $10,000 to invest, to have a fully diversified portfolio, you might not want to put $1,000 in a single bond. But what if you could buy a token for $50, for example, that tracks the performance of a given bond? That's sort of the idea behind tokens and tokenization. Um, and that's probably what he's talking about in the context of retail finance. So retail finance is investors like you and me, not institutional level investors who are, you know, putting millions and billions of dollars to work, but everyday investors who may just be starting out, who might be looking to invest a portfolio of a few thousand dollars. And the more sort of accessible they can make the, the more they can make more financial products accessible at lower price points while still providing like exposure to a bunch of different asset classes, um, the more accessible it becomes to more people. It's sort of like, the, it's, it, it would be like along the trends of that democratization of finance, right? Um, so things that I would kind of put in that bucket would be like I said, like the share, I can't remember what they call them. I think they call them like share slices or something like that, um, where you don't actually have a full ownership. You don't own a full share of a stock, but you buy like a slice of a share because you don't have, say, $300 to put into one stock, but maybe you want to put 20. Um, and so different brokers were offering things like that. And the same could be done for bonds. Now, this all comes into play in the concept of kind of like structured finance. And, you know, you want to make sure there's transparency in terms of how it's working. There's often going to be, you know, fees associated with it. No, no bank is going to do things like this out of the kindness of their heart. Um, but the idea would be either increasing volume of activity and investment volume filtering through your platform. One of the issues, for example, with sort of the share slices is they're non-transferable. So what do I mean by that? I mean, like, if you wanted, like, say you had um, an IRA on, you know, whatever the brokerage house was where you had it, if you wanted to roll that over to somewhere else, the share slices were only accessible on their platform. So you would actually have to cash them out and potentially incur tax consequences because you're selling um, and not be able to roll those over and transfer them the way you could the rest of your portfolio, for example. Um, so sometimes they can be used to create you know, customer loyalty, customer stickiness, things like that. But essentially that's what tokenization is. It's creating something at a lower price point that still tracks and mimics the performance of the underlying asset that someone's trying to invest in um, to make it more accessible to more people is I think probably the simplest way to explain it. It could get more complex than that, but I hope that that helps and at least probably gets to what he was talking about. Um, so I think that was it for the questions submitted in the box last night. 
A couple things just to be aware of. Obviously, a lot of people are waiting to see what the Fed says today. There have been all kinds of predictions about what the Fed's going to do and when they're going to do it. Today, we will hear from them directly about what their decision is on monetary policy for now. Many people are hoping also that there will be some indication in the verbiage. You may remember that every time they have this press conference, it's sort of a very formulaic press release that they give out, and people examine it very closely for any slight changes um, in the tone or in the language that they use around, especially like specific line items within it. So people will be looking at that very closely to see, is there any indication of, are they changing their perspective on when they will lower interest rates, when they will start to cut interest rates? I think most people expect that today there will be no change. They will hold interest rates flat. Um, the big question is when they're going to start to cut rates. And by many people's predictions, they anticipate that to start happening at some point in 2024. Some people think it's going to happen earlier, like in the first quarter. Others think it is more likely to happen, you know, as we approach the summer of 2024. And again, the things that are going to drive that decision is where is inflation? Inflation is still running about 50 to 100% over that 2% target, depending on kind of which measure you look at. The latest CPI reading yesterday showed that headline CPI was at 3.1%, but core CPI, which is if you strip out the impact of food and energy prices, which are more volatile, that's still running at 4%, which is two times the Fed's 2% target. And so that really kind of takes off the table the Fed cutting rates, at least right now, because they want to see 2% long-run average inflation and starting to cut rates before that could spur inflation to pick back up again. Um, the other thing that drives kind of their decision-making is what's happening with unemployment. Um, and in November, unemployment kind of unexpectedly took a downtick. It's at like 3.7%, which again is relatively low by all historical measures. Um, even though we are seeing indications of kind of softening around the edges of the labor market. So that's all what's factoring into the Fed's decision today. Also with this meeting, they will release kind of their, they do it every other meeting. They put out a report that shows kind of how all the people on the Fed Board of Governors are thinking about their outlook for the economy. And that is relevant simply from the perspective of that's what's informing their decisions about rate cuts. So we will get updated projections of things like where do they think GDP growth will be for this year and the coming year? Where do they think unemployment will be at the end of this year and for the coming year? And where do they see inflation? How do they see inflation playing out um, for this year and the coming year? And obviously, all of that is going to factor into their decisions about rate cuts. So many people are looking for that. That will um, The meeting is a two-day meeting. It started yesterday. It culminates this afternoon with a press conference with Chair Jerome Powell. So as soon as that comes out, I will link it up and I will give you kind of a breakdown of what all the data points say there. Um, so that's kind of the big one last big thing that should happen ahead of the holidays. Um, I'm trying to think what else. Oh, one other thing, in case you guys missed it, last week I put out a blog post about the impact of rising interest rates on our national debt and why that makes the national debt of much greater concern than it has been perhaps in the past. 
Um, so if you want to understand kind of those dynamics and then um, that kind of breaks it all down. Uh, and essentially the short version of the story is that higher interest rates on record levels of national debt puts a greater expense burden, burden on the financial budget every year. And the only way we overcome that burden is either through growth, which would raise tax revenue or higher taxes. Um, and so ultimately what it means for your personal finances is likely a higher tax bill in the future, not just for the extremely wealthy among us, but likely for everybody, if we're ever going to kind of like get this under control. And then there's actually an article that came out in the Wall Street Journal this week that points to why this matters, like why we can't just issue exorbitant amounts of debt forever. And it's about treasury auctions, which is how the federal government actually issues debt. So when they don't have enough money to pay their bills, they have to issue debt. And the only way they can issue debt is if someone's willing to buy it. And they, and they do this through what are known as treasury auctions. And so they go out to all the big major banks and bond investors of the world and they say, hey, we need to issue a trillion dollars and we're gonna issue this much in 10-year bonds and this much in five-year bonds and this much in three-year bonds and this much in you know three-month treasury bills. How much are you willing to buy and what do you want us to pay for it? And so they build a book of interest from all these potential investors. And what we've started to see happen, which we haven't seen happen really frequently in the past, is they've had a tough time getting enough interested buyers and they've wound up having to pay higher rates of interest in order to raise enough capital for what they need. Um, and there's a really good article in the Wall Street Journal that breaks all of that down. So we're starting potentially to bump up against the demand level for US Treasury bonds. And I point this out in my post as well, which is that Historically, there have been a lot of foreign government investors in U.S. Treasury bonds, two of the major ones being Japan and China. And if you look at their holdings over the last four years, they've come down significantly. So that is one area that was a major source of demand, and that demand is tailing off. So they're you know, lowering their holdings of U.S. Treasury bonds, which means somebody else is going to have to buy more. And especially more because the amount of issuance is higher and higher. Um, so anyway, just big picture economic things to be aware of. And ultimately what it boils down to is the ramifications for you and your personal finances is likely higher taxes in the future. Um, so anyway, I will link all of that up in my stories as I'm done here. If I don't, I won't be seeing all of you on the live format again until 2024. So have a great holiday season with your family. Be sure to take time off and enjoy the moment. Value experiences over things. Um, and we'll kick things off in 2024, you know, making sure you can tackle those financial New Year's resolutions. So have a great rest of the year and I will see y'all in January. Thanks for listening to today's Q&A replay. As a reminder, to get your questions answered, be sure to follow me on Instagram at Family Finance Mom 
and look for the question box in my stories ahead of each live session or join live Q&A at 9 a.m. Eastern every Wednesday. Any resources mentioned in today's replay can also be found in today's show notes.